New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. This episode is a real treat for me. We're tossing the keys to the time machine into the hands of Lincoln historian Jason Emerson, who I welcome for a written interview on his book, Mary Lincoln for the Ages. Jason will be using his expertise to conduct an interview with Michael Burlingame, who holds the Chancellor Naomi B. Lynn Distinguished Chair in Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois, Springfield. The topic of their conversation is An American Marriage, the untold story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. It's the latest book on the 16th president that Mr. Burlingame has written or edited. You can find his other in-depth works of history at michaelberlingame.com. You can also find his schedule, as now we are getting into more live author events. And you can visit this week's Pinch Hitter at jasonemerson.com, where you can look into his previous Lincoln books. You'll get all the Lincoln you could possibly want. And you can also follow our guests on social media. Of the landmark biography, Abraham Lincoln, A Life, James McPherson of the New York Review of Books said that Burlingame knows more about Abraham Lincoln than any other living person. So no pressure there, Jason. You could see why I wanted to call in a ringer to lend his vast knowledge to the show and bring you a fresh and informed picture of our 16th president in his home life. Not just the guy carved up on Mount Rushmore, but the man when he came home at the end of the day, when he's answering the door, when he's doing all those things that you have to do in a marriage to make it work. And at times, the Todd-Lincoln marriage didn't work very well. In addition to being a Lincoln author himself, Jason was a National Park Service ranger at the Lincoln Home National Historic Site, so he knows what he's talking about. All right. Now that we've arrived back at the Lincoln Todd wedding reception, I'm going to turn over the hosting duties to Jason Emerson as he welcomes Michael Burlingame to chat about an American marriage. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the History Author Show. Today we are talking about your new book, An American Marriage, The Untold Story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. Thanks, Jason, for inviting me. I'm very glad to be with you today. Absolutely. Now, in this book, you talk about the Lincoln marriage, obviously, its roots and its realities and how and why it affected Abraham Lincoln as a man and as a president. Now, you've studied Lincoln for 30 years. You've written and edited over a dozen books, countless articles, including the monumental, uh, the two-volume book, Abraham Lincoln, A Life, which is also right there. I had to put that up there as well. like your product placement. <laughs> you see, I know what I'm doing. And then you know, I got my own books actually behind my head. It's probably not the best placement for my books, but we're here to talk about you, not me. <laughs> but Dean did say I could put my book right there. So, you know, who am I to argue? Deserves an honored place. <laughs> so now in your book, you contend that uh, the Lincoln marriage was, uh, in the words of Herndon, a burning, scorching hell 
that Lincoln only married Mary out of a sense of honor and obligation, that she abused him verbally, emotionally, and physically, and that while she supported and even goaded his ambition, she really also crushed his spirit. But of course, as you know, that's really only one view of the marriage, as we both know. The other view is that the Lincolns loved each other very much, that they were happy, particularly during the Springfield years, but they had issues and troubles as all couples do. And the idea that Mary made her husband's life a living hell, that she abused him, that she committed unethical acts as first lady, these are really dismissed as male chauvinism, as idolatrous prejudice in favor of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, it's just a way to deny Mary her rightful glory because, you know, in fact, she really was his political partner. And we've known each other for years. We've been around the Lincoln block a few times. I've written about Mary. We've debated the marriage. We've debated Mary. And when I read your book, I couldn't wait to get into it. So I want to start with the basic question of, you know, why did you write this book? You know, why is understanding the Lincoln marriage important to understanding Lincoln, the man and the president? Well, I wrote this particular book in part because uh, much of what I say in general, I said in earlier works. My first book, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, came out in 1994. And I had a long chapter on the Lincoln marriage in which I made many of the points that are in this new book. And then when I wrote my 2000 page biography, which came out in 2009, I added more information. And yet uh, subsequent writers have ignored the evidence that I painstakingly dug up in manuscript sources and public records and newspapers. And when I published The Inner World, and then when I published The Green Monster, as I call uh, the 2000 page biography, (laughs) I assumed that subsequent writers would at least have to come to grips with some of the evidence that I had painstakingly adduced and carefully footnoted and and uh, they don't and I thought well this is frustrating and then I thought people really do need to know about Lincoln's unhappy marriage if they're going to fully understand the achievement he uh, made in conquering adversity because his adversity wasn't simply a result of a childhood in abject poverty on the frontier Uh, the early death of his mother, the unsympathetic father, the lack of formal education, the the depressions that he suffered from, his midlife, all that, there's plenty. But on top of that, he had this very difficult marriage to contend with. And unless you understand how he dealt with that and how difficult it was and how woe-filled it was, you can't fully appreciate the uh, nature and extent of his triumph over adversity. So I thought, now, if somebody were to be interested in the Lincoln marriage as a topic, where would they go? Would they go to a book that has the rather generic title, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln? Probably not. Would they go to a rather daunting 2,000-page biography? Probably not. So I thought I would take the information that I had adduced in those earlier works, supplement it with a lot of new information, because as you well know, one of the great boons for historians that's taken place in, in the past decade or two right. is the development of word-searchable newspaper archives, a fantastic source of new Everything I've written needs to be updated because right. of the availability of these newspapers that are so easily accessible and, and searchable. Absolutely. And so, and another thing, when I wrote The Inner World, that was an essay, and I couldn't really expand much on, on uh, the subject, say, of Mrs. Lincoln's appointees, people that she recommended for public office who had bribed her, 
-hmm. and how badly they behaved because an essay in a book of that length has, has to be relatively brief. Similarly, when I'm writing even a 2000 page biography, I've got to keep the story moving forward. I can't stop to spend a lot of time describing how these appointees misbehaved, but I do that in this new book. So it, it offers a lot more detail about the consequences of her actions. And also there's just tons of new information. So that's why I decided to write this book. And I wanted to keep it relatively brief. I'm not known as- <laughs> <laughs> Especially your footnotes. <laughs> And so I decided not to include the footnotes to keep it to a 300 page book, which seemed to me to be manageable, something the public would not feel intimidated by. And I have 150 pages of, of footnotes, but I thought a 300 page book is much, much, have a much wider circulation than a 450 page book. And most people aren't going to care about the footnotes, right. but I have elaborately documented everything I say, and it is available online. Uh, and unfortunately, some reviewers have, have failed to note that. I, I mentioned it twice. In the, <laughs> but um, now my, my next book is coming out in November on Lincoln's interaction with black people. And I'm including all the footnotes in that one and still keeping <laughs> Right. <laughs> learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love what you say about um, you know, using newspaper sources. That's always been one of my big things as well. There's so much. There's a reason people have called that history's first draft because that's reporting on scene at the time when it happened. Now, of course, you have to take into, a, into account, you know, back then there were overtly Republican, overtly Democrat papers, but there's so much that even, you know, when studying Mary Lincoln, I mean, you can find interviews where a reporter, you know, when she gets off the boat in uh, the 1880s, after coming back from Europe, the reporter grabbed her right off the boat, interviewed her and Tad right on the dock. Mm -hmm. Those are things that, it's just not right to ignore the newspaper coverage of these things. And I, I think that a lot of historians need to use a lot more of that rather than looking at past books, you know, go write more for the direct sources. Well, and as you point out in, in your estimable uh, bibliography, annotated bibliography, so much that has been written about the Lincoln marriage and about Mrs. Lincoln is just rehashing six or seven uh, books. Yep. Uh, and there's nothing really new in the way of interpretation or, or evidence. And when people challenge my interpretations of the nature of the Lincoln marriage and of Mrs. Lincoln, I, I say, I'd be happy to change my interpretation if you'll show me your evidence. And I, I, have, I have laid out a lot of evidence. Right. And if you've got a good contrary set of evidence or, or arguments about why the logic that I use to interpret that evidence is faulty, well, I'm happy to entertain that. And, and in this book, as you know, I include an appendix in which I go through the arguments that people have put forward different from mine. Mm -hmm. And I show why I think their arguments are not convincing. And, then, but, and I welcome a, a, a rebuttal in which my evidence is shown to be misleading or unrepresentative or the like. But mm -hmm. I, I, I try to be an objective, dispassionate historian and tell the truth as best I can based on the evidence that I've adduced. Right. And yeah, I've found that uh, in many cases in the Lincoln world, a lot of people who uh, have differences with certain authors, um, yeah, they, they can't back that up with the evidence because they don't go to the archives. They don't go to the primary sources. Um, so that is a perfect segue into one thing that we have to discuss, I think, when talking about Lincoln, but also when talking about Mary Lincoln or the marriage is we have to talk about William Herndon. 
Abraham Lincoln's law partner of many years, who then he interviewed everybody he could find of Lincoln's, particularly his early life. He wrote his own biography in 1889 with help, of course. And now all of the interviews he did and all the facts he did, they are all kept in uh, Knox College, the Lincoln Studies Center. There are many books, the best one called Lincoln's Informants, which just lays out all the people he interviewed and what they said. Now, the New York Times review of, of your book, An American Marriage, they did criticize your approach that you were too open to what Herndon said, that you know he was giving off some hearsay and rumor, what they said, you didn't interrogate his sources. But I think that comment brings up an imperative point of you have to understand Herndon and you have to use his sources. It really, if you want to do anything about the Lincolns and it's, you know, the, the history of his work, you know, it was accepted, then it was ignored. And now it's getting a little bit more accepted again. So I've always said that everyone, if they want to study Lincoln or Mary, you have to go to Herndon's, not just his book, but his notes, his letters, the interviews he did. And then you also have to understand who he was and the perspective from which he approached his work. So what are your thoughts on Herndon's work and his contribution to our understanding of the Lincolns? Well, I was trained as a historian by David Herbert Donald. I had him when I was an undergraduate, was his research assistant. I pursued a PhD under his tutelage. And he had written uh, a biography. It's still the standard biography of Herndon in which he rather poo-poos Herndon as a source of information about Lincoln and helped set Lincoln scholarship back at least 50 years because he was writing under the tutelage of the premier Lincoln scholar of that time, James G. Randall. And Randall's wife, Ruth Peter Randall, was waging a one-woman crusade to prove that Mrs. Lincoln was the only woman that Abraham Lincoln had ever loved and that they loved each other deeply and she was a great helpmate and so forth. Mrs. Randall and her husband, Professor Randall, were really like parents to their graduate students. They didn't have children of their own. And, and so David Donald was like their surrogate son. Uh, and, and he's a very, very smart, very diligent fellow, but he had to toe the party line, which was Herndon's notion that the Lincoln marriage was terrible is baloney. It's based on these reminiscences that he had collected uh, with 200 different people. And those reminiscences were truly unreliable. These are old timers drooling on their bibs and making <laughs> stories out of whole cloth. And so she, uh, she began by attacking the Anne Rutledge story that Lincoln, as, as a young man in New Salem, had fallen in love with Anne Rutledge, was deeply devoted to her. They were going to get married. Then she tragically died and his heart was buried with her. Herndon went on to say then that they never loved anybody else. And Herndon can be relied upon when he's talking about what he saw and what his informants have provided. And particularly now that we have the raw materials that his right. informants provided. But when he starts to get into analysis, you have to, have to back off a little. It's not because he hated Mary Lincoln, although that's, that's widely said. If, if Mary Lincoln and he hated each other, why did she give him an interview in 1865? Exactly. Later in 1865, he gives this lecture in which he talks about uh, the Ann Rutledge story. And Ann Rutledge was the only woman he really loved. And his heart was buried with her. And he never really loved his wife. Well, Mrs. Lincoln understandably to that. And thereafter they were not right. And that's where the hate started, right there <laughs> on Mary's side. Exactly. Herndon does write during uh, the war. Uh, in 1862, he writes a letter in which he talks about Mrs. Lincoln as a, uh, making her husband's life miserable because she's a very wicked, eccentric woman. 
But uh, later in his life, and I mean, maybe even at that time, Herndon says, look, she's more to be pitied than censured. Right. Um, and, and this is an argument that I would like to emphasize in, in uh, our conversation today, in which I've emphasized in every book I've ever written, any article I've ever written, any presentation I've ever made. I like to preface my remarks by saying that Mrs. Lincoln is more to be pitied than censured. That the Almighty ladles out a fair amount of misery on all of our plates, but her portion was particularly heaping. Consider, right. mother dies when Mary's only six. Now, that's tough to lose a parent, but particularly at that tender age. Her father then, in order to deal with the six children, Mary and her siblings, goes out and immediately remarries. The new wife says, honey, don't pay attention to those children you had by that dead woman. Pay attention to the nine children we're going to have. And, right. and, and so Robert Todd Lincoln did sire 15 children. Well, every man should have an occupation, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and so in order to placate his new wife, who says, pay attention to our children, Mary and her siblings feel as though they've been tuned out emotionally. Now they're provided for materially, physically, educationally, and all that. But emotionally, the, Mary is really bereft because her mother has died. And kids tend to think of the death of a parent, particularly when they're that young, as a deliberate act of abandonment. Well, that's crazy, mm. but that's the way kids think, apparently. Right. Um, so she feels abandoned by her mother. Then her father tunes her out, so she's emotionally abandoned by her father. And then and then, as, as she grows up, she has terrible migraine headaches, debilitating, nausea-inducing headaches uh, regularly for, throughout her adult life. She has terrible menstrual problems, which she even writes about on, on one occasion, but, other, but neighbors testify to them. Then three of her four children die before they reach adulthood. And even by the standards of the 19th century, that's a really high percentage. Right. And, and then her favorite child, uh, Willie, dies as, uh, in the White House at age 11. Her least favorite child, Robert, <laughs> is, is the only one who survives. And Robert, who is a very conscientious, dutiful son, has her committed to an insane asylum, as you have br brilliantly argued and, and documented to a fairly well. Uh, he's much to be admired. Right. He was doing his duty. He was protecting right. her herself. Here's a woman notoriously gullible, wandering around the streets of Chicago with all of her assets on her right. uh, and easily uh, defrauded of those because she's so gullible. Um, and you couldn't appoint a conservator, as you point out, under the law in those days, unless the person was committed to, a, to an asylum. And so Robert right. Lincoln has been given a very bad rap, and you've done marvelous work in helping to deal with that, that slander. Thank you. So when you add all these things up, and then, of course, her husband's murdered by her side at the <laughs> Right. Getting you know, a minor detail. So when you add all up, that's just a terrible series of blows, and that has to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, she behaved very badly, and she made her husband's domestic life very unhappy. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, I mean, one thing that I've always found very interesting, and yeah, I'd like to talk about um, Abraham and Mary and, and their upbringing and how similar and yet different they were. But, um, you know, Mary was, one thing people forget is that she was a Todd. I mean, the Todd family, they were all very similar. They were high strung. They could be incredibly mean, self-centered, selfish, biting and caustic in their criticism. Uh, I personally believe that Mary was a narcissist, which doesn't help anything. But then on the other hand, you know, Mary could be extremely loving and kind and altruistic even, um, which is, you know, one of the many reasons I and many people believe that uh, Mary was bipolar, but also she was a Todd and that's what her family was like. And, and Abraham Lincoln knew exactly who she was 
when he started dating and ultimately when he married her. But talk a little bit about kind of their upbringings. They were similar. They both had mother who died young, parents who kind of abandoned them emotionally. They both love children. They love poetry. Um, so they were similar and yet very different. Right. And I think the most striking parallel uh, in their backgrounds, which, which on the surface of it is, is extremely different. I mean, Lincoln grows up in real abject frontiers, hard scrabble poverty. She grows up in genteel, prosperous uh, Lexington, Kentucky, which was considered uh, the Athens of the West. Mm -hmm. uh, she went to boarding school. She had much more education than most women of her day. And she was uh, familiar with poetry, literature, as well as the social graces. And, and here poor Lincoln is raised in the most crude uh, conditions of frontier backwardness and ignorance and poverty and drunkenness and superstition. Um, and so, so socially and educationally, their backgrounds could hardly be different. But they shared this, as you point out, they shared this, this very important uh, similar uh, experience, the early death of their mother. Mm -hmm. Which was not from a vampire. We should just clarify that. <laughs> right. right? Exactly. <laughs> so Lincoln is only nine years old when his mother dies under very tragic circumstances, a terrible disease called uh, milk sickness, which is a kind of poisoning from infected milk from cows. And you go through this elaborate period of dying where you're writhing and your tongue is turning black and your, uh, your eyes are rolling. And imagine a little boy, nine years old, but watching his mother day in and day out in a one-room cabin dying like that. And so from that experience, I speculate, and you can't prove this sort of thing because it's very hard to prove any kind of psychological interpretation. And by the way, I am something of a psychohistorian. Um, that, by the way, is one word. Um, <laughs> there are psycho historians two words but i fancy i do not belong to that camp although not everybody i know would necessarily do that as it may <laughs> um and so I, I i infer from uh the way lincoln behaved around women because one of the strangest aspects of lincoln's personality and, and life is his is his relationship with women? He was very uneasy around women. Mm -hmm. uh, he was notoriously bashful, uh, and and he, he didn't want to get very close to women. Because, uh, evidently, I speculate, which this is plausible. It seems to me that that he learned from the death of his mother that, and, and which he may well have interpreted as a deliberate act of abandonment. Uh, that you, you mustn't get close too close to women because they'll let you down, um, right. and then you'll be deeply hurt. Um, and so he, and, and by the way, the, the whole point about the Lincoln marriage and how woe-filled it was needs to be framed uh, with the understanding that Lincoln was not an ideal husband. Right. I was going to bring that up. A, a lot right. of people forget that Lincoln was, he was just a man. He was not a God that he has become today. Right. And, and uh, unlike every other man you've ever heard of, Lincoln was very emotionally reserved and uncommunicative, mm -hmm. and more so than most uh, right. for, for these reasons. And also then he has an unsympathetic father. And so the damage that the early death of a parent can do, according to some psychologists that I'm familiar with anyway, that damage can be undone largely if the surviving parent is nurturant and sympathetic and empathetic and, and supportive, um, which, which Thomas Lincoln wasn't. <laughs> Everything now, Thomas was not, as far as we know. <laughs> But, but then luckily he does get a stepmother right. who's, who's the opposite of the wicked stepmother that Mary has, um, who helps undo some of that damage. But still, he's, he's gross up with this very pronounced inability to relate easily to women. Mm -hmm. He was not an ideal husband because he stayed away from home a great deal. 
mm-hmm. that lawyers in Illinois in Springfield couldn't make enough money simply practicing in the, in the state capital. And every spring and every fall, they had to go practice on what was called the circuit. And that is that uh, county seats throughout central Illinois would have a court session uh, for a week or so in the spring and then a fall. And so the lawyers would go out. Some practiced in, in a, some, uh, a few uh, county seats. Lincoln practiced in all of them. Mm-hmm. Most lawyers went home on the weekend. Lincoln never went home on the weekend. So he would be away from home for weeks on end. And then there was no, there were very little communication between them. There were no telephones. And, and then she knew where, what uh, post offices he would join to be at. And, his, and she didn't write to him and he didn't write to her. He was very willing or eager, in fact, to spend as much time away from home as possible. And she then, on the other hand, she feels abandoned by her father. And she marries Lincoln as a kind of father substitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she referred to him as father. And, and she said that nothing pleased her more than for him to refer to her as his child wife. Yep. So here's the surrogate father. So, so she's looking for a surrogate father. Now, Lincoln's 10 years more, almost 10 years older than she is. He's much taller than she is. And he radiates a quality that, that all his friends talked about of being a wise old man, even as, as a relatively young man. So she's drawn to him as a surrogate father. But then when she lands him, all the anger that she feels at her father then gets displaced onto Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln responds to that by staying away from home as much as possible, which simply is adding kerosene to the fire of her anger. So Lincoln, Lincoln's marriage was well-filled uh, in part because he was far from an ideal husband. Right. And I think, too, that, uh, you know, when I was reading through Herndon's informants, uh, you know, way back when, um, there are other things, too, that uh, struck, stuck out to me as things you don't think of, of Abraham Lincoln. You know, when he is at home, um, he would take off his coat, roll up his sleeves, take off his shoes, and he would answer the door that way, which infuriated Mary because that is so uncouth. Um, you know, if, if he was reading, he would be so engrossed. She would call his name. He wouldn't respond because he just tune everything out, which would infuriate her. So there are, you know, it's interesting how there, there's always blame to go around. Um, but, you know, in your book, one thing you say is um, the most corrosive forces that undermine the Lincoln marriage were Mary's ungovernable temper and Abraham's emotional reserve, as we just discussed. And I think that's I think that's right on the money. Um, I do think, too, a good thing to point out, though, again, you know, politics is such a is a dirty word and a dirty business. But Abraham Lincoln was a consummate politician. And don't you think I think he also loved being on the circuit. And, you know, one reason he was such a great politician was because he knew everyone. He knew everything that was going on because he traveled. Would you say that's a a good, a a fair assessment of uh, what his life was like? on the circuit as well. Right, exactly. And, and good friends of his, people very knowledgeable about him, uh, said that he was really only happy on the circuit. That was the, right. David Davis, his, uh, his good friend and uh, man whom he appoints to the U.S. Supreme Court. He was the judge of the circuit court that Lincoln practiced in. So David Davis and his campaign manager in 1860 and the executor of his estate, David Davis said that it was the only place where he was really happy. Uh, and there was a lot of male camaraderie, a lot of joking, a lot of uh, wrestling and, and uh, uh, joke telling. And, um, and so it was it was a kind of uh, male, male uh, outing, a vacation away from right. home. Um, and, um, and Lincoln particularly enjoyed that. And, and uh, as you say, one of the things that made Lincoln a successful politician in Illinois 
was that he spent so much time on the circuit. And, mm -hmm. and when you were on the circuit, you didn't just handle cases. You also socialized. Uh, you, 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 you talked to jurors, of course, when you were uh, arguing a case. Uh, you might socialize with them, and when when these little hamlets had the had their circuit courts, it was it was like entertainment for the farmers. Right. They, so they came and they watched, and they they had their heroes, and and so Lincoln did a lot of so. And he was a very personable guy, mm -hmm. very uh, accessible, very friendly, very warm, and very funny, and and also a good lawyer. Uh, right. So he won a lot of affection and respect, and that helped him immensely. One of the arguments that, that Lincoln's friends made, reflecting upon his success as a politician, they said it, it's partly thanks to Mrs. Lincoln that she made her his home life so disagreeable that he spent a great deal of time what we would call networking today. Not deliberately right. networking, that is going out deliberately getting people's business cards, but, but being out of the home, uh, out on the circuit, um, interacting with people who would then become voters, who would then right. vote for him. It's been argued that Lincoln's success as a politician was in part due to the fact that Mrs. Lincoln made his home life so disagreeable and that if he had been married a woman like Joshua Speed's wife or, or like Ann Rutledge, he would have been very content to raise children, be at home. Um, but she, she made that so difficult that, that one of the, the fringe benefits of, the, of her disagreeability was that it made him uh, more politically successful. But also, uh, and to supplement that point, um, Lincoln was an ambitious politician before he met her. Right. Um, he had he'd already won uh, elections to the, the to the state legislature uh, twice, and uh, and was was prominent in the state legislature. And so he was ambitious. She didn't create his ambition, but she turbocharged it. Right. That 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 in the uh, biography that Herndon and Jesse White wrote, there's a famous passage that, that many people know, uh, in which. They say Abraham Lincoln's ambition, uh, he was, uh, he, his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. Yep. So that's the image. Well, she turbocharged that image, uh, that engine. And if she hadn't been prodding him to get ahead and go further and further and further, because she wanted to be famous, she wanted to be first lady. She had even right. talked about that as, as a kid. So he might not have gone as far as he did if it hadn't been for her goading him and pressing him on. And again, many of us, this is not just my interpretation. Many of the people who knew him well said that. Right. All right. So we are talking again to Michael Burlingame, author of An American Marriage, The Untold Story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. Michael is the editor or author of over a dozen books on Lincoln. He holds the Chancellor Naomi B. Lynn Distinguished Chair in Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois Springfield. Now, Michael, I have a comment and a question from Candace Shai Hooper, who is a historian. Um, her latest book was Lincoln's General's Wives. Uh, that book was previously discussed, and she was interviewed on the History Author Show. And she said of your book that it will certainly rock a lot of readers' worlds. And as she read it, she had many questions that came to mind. One question she had that I liked was your title, An American Marriage, and how you arrived at that title. And she said even that the subtitle, The Untold Story of, seems that you deliberately obscured the book's powerful and tragic content. Uh, you know, what is your response to that uh, question? Well, if, if you go with a trade publisher, you don't always get to choose your title. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I had published with university presses exclusively up until this point. But I thought, I really want to get this word out. This right. is an aspect of Lincoln that needs to be more fully appreciated. Um, 
and I wanted to reach a, a larger audience than university presses usually reach. And you, you, you know this, right. university presses are great about publishing stuff uh, that, that's important, uh, that wouldn't necessarily appeal to a large audience, but it's very important for scholarship and future authors. Um, they, they tend to publish your footnotes, they tend yep. to keep the book print for a longer time, but they're terrible when it comes to advertising and marketing and sales. So I chose a trade press in hopes of reaching a larger audience. They chose the main time. And I, I used Untold simply because there's an awful lot of information that is in this 300-page book that simply hasn't been paid attention to. Right. That is to say, some of it, as I mentioned earlier, is in my earlier books, but that, that doesn't seem to get much attention. And also, <laughs> a tremendous amount of new information that was uh, available through newspaper research made it seem to me as though the, the story had never been properly told or fully told. Right. So I, 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 I chose the subtitle. <laughs> now, I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, when you talk about Mary Lincoln, there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, you know, there's a lot, been a lot of books about her by commercial presses, and they're always referred to. And if there's a television show, radio show, news uh, article, they always go to those one or two books. They're outdated, but they're just not well done. And I think you and I agree on one thing before we get back to the marriage, just talking about Mary Lincoln. I personally think that the best biography of Mary yet written was from uh, 1932. W.A. Evans, Mrs. Abraham Lincoln, a study of her personality. I recently published an article in, in the Wall Street Journal about the five best books on Lincoln, the Lincoln marriage. And I start off by saying improbable, although it may seem the best book on the subject was published in 1932. Absolutely. Let's move ahead to the presidency. We talked about Lincoln is just a man. And you know, if you look at his early years in the White House, uh, he had a lot of failures and some lack of judgment on some of his appointees. Mary's influence. Let's talk about that a little bit. Again, uh, not just to keep digging at her, but it, it had an effect on him and as a man and as a president, because she did, as you mentioned earlier, she wanted him to appoint certain people for specific reasons. And, you know, um, this goes to the fact that many people today think that they were a political partnership that Mary was Hillary Clinton 150 years too soon, which is, I mean, if you look at the evidence, that's all baloney, but a lot of people believe that. So what are your thoughts on this kind of political partnership and Mary's influence on his judgment or, or lack thereof in some cases? Well, one of the most uh, striking things I found in my research uh, about the Lincoln marriage is an interview that was conducted 10 years after the assassination by Lincoln's principal White House secretary, John G. Nicolay. And she interviews uh, Orville Browning. Orville Browning was a, a leading lawyer in Quincy, Illinois, and he was a legislator at the time that Lincoln was a legislator. They served in the legislature together. He was a good friend of his. Mrs. Browning was a particular favorite of Lincoln's and vice versa. And Browning uh, served in the U.S. Senate during the Civil War as a replacement for Stephen A. Douglas, who dies early in the war. He, he spent a lot of time in the White House and he kept a diary. Um, but then he also gives this interview. And, and these two sources, the, the diary and the interview, are, uh, are, are two of the most important contributions that I, uh, I think I've made. Absolutely. Um, one is, is and the, in, in the interview, he, Browning says, Lincoln told me, in the White House on several occasions that he was constantly worried that his wife would do something to bring him into disgrace. 
Now, Lincoln was famously shut mouth, almost mm -hmm. never talked about his personal life, about his marriage. But here, here's Browning, and Browning's telling us this. And she did bring him into disgrace because she, she pressured him to appoint people to positions of authority, not cabinet positions, but, but uh, important patronage positions, who turned out to be dishonest and embarrassed the administration. And Lincoln was criticized for this, for, for uh, and understandably, for appointing people to office who abused their powers and who lined their pockets and, and behaved reprehensibly. She was a partner in that sense that, that she was telling him who to appoint to be the collector of the Port of New York or the Naval Agency in the Port of New York or postmaster here or what have you. And in the interests of um, domestic peace, he, he would make these appointments knowing that they were far from ideal. And another thing that has to be borne in mind when we, when we talk about Lincoln's willingness to accede to Mrs. Lincoln's pressure in appointing these scoundrels is that Lincoln was terrified that his wife was teetering on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Right. That she was, she was mentally unstable and fragile from the very beginning. Was it one, of, one of the most striking episodes that I, I discovered, actually it was published before my book, uh, was an episode when they were first married and they were living in the Globe Tavern. Mrs. Lincoln was always late coming to breakfast and everybody else at the tavern couldn't sit down to have breakfast because of the rules of the house stipulated that breakfast couldn't be served until all the guests were seated. So she'd always be late. So one day, uh, Lincoln gently chides her for her tardiness, at which point she flies into a rage, grabs a hot cup of coffee, flings it in his face, and goes screaming out of the room. Now, my, my beloved said, well, she was pregnant, wasn't she? And I said, yes, but not all pregnant women behave like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so, so right off the bat, he knew, whoa, he is up against uh, uh, somebody who's mentally uh, or a little uh, unstable. Right. Um, and so, uh, and then when she loses her son, uh, Eddie, uh, their, their son, when, when Eddie's only was all, just almost four years old, back in 1850, uh, she, she's pretty bad, hurt deeply as, as she might be, because that left them with only one son. Right. So then you have two more, uh, and that, but then Willie is the favorite uh, right. of, of both parents, and he dies at the age of 11 in, in the White House, and that's when she really goes off the deep end. Right. Um, I think that's really the, that was really the precipice where she fell off, as did uh, many people, including their oldest son, Robert, who believed that that was the catalyst, that Mary was always mentally unstable, which I agree with, and I, I've written about in my books, but it was really Willie's death that sent her over the deep end um, to a certain degree. That's when she started getting into spiritualism. There were seances in the White House and outside the White House. What's interesting too, is that can tie directly to the February 1862 ball that the Lincolns held, that was a PR disaster of monstrous proportions. Right. While they held this elaborate, lavish ball with food from, uh, you know, uh, chefs in New York City and all the, the gowns and the lace and the decorations and thousands of dollars were spent. And of course, this all reeked of you know, reeked of avarice, of callousness, of you know, the soldiers don't even have blankets. And Mrs. Lincoln's holding this party. And not to mention upstairs, their son is dying in his bed, but they have enough time to, to have a party. So I think this is also one of those events, as you mentioned, where, you know, Mary and her poor decision-making embarrassed her husband and his administration by, you know, her own vanity was, um, I think that was a major, a major flaw of the many she had as first lady uh, because she thought she was a queen and treated people as such. And, you know, after the assassination, she had no friends left. And I think a lot of that is because of the way she treated people. 
Yeah, she her, she had an imperious manner. Yes. Um, how dare you sit down in my presence without my permission? And and referring to herself in the third person, uh, <laughs> right. we insist on this having <laughs> being done, and and that kind of haughtiness rankled people and made her a very unpopular first lady. And and as you say, what what brought Lincoln in disgrace wasn't just the fact that he had appointed uh, rogues and scoundrels at her insistence but also that she behaved in other ways that were very embarrassing. She spent a lot of time shopping in New York, a lot of time right. on vacation in New England, when people were saying, why aren't you in the hospitals? Why aren't you taking, and there's some evidence that she occasionally visited hospitals, but the evidence is pretty scanty actually. And right. we actually, we have contrary evidence. And on one soldier writes and says, well, all these newspaper accounts about her visiting hospitals, well, I've been here for weeks on <laughs> and I got friends at other hospitals and they haven't seen hide or hair of her. Um, right. And even that was only after Willie died, really, right, because exactly, exactly. and true to a narcissist, she took Willie's death as um, God's blow against herself because he was punishing her for her behavior um, rather than, you know, thinking about her husband or Willie. One thing that I want to really want to discuss, um, which I think personally is one of your major contributions to Lincoln's scholarship here is Mary Lincoln's unethical conduct as first lady. Uh, now that is an appendix in your book, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, that essay, which um, of course it really kind of blew the shutters off everything when that came out back in the nineties. And I think that that, I always tell people when they ask me, you know, what should one read or not read about Mary if you really want to understand her. And I always tell everyone, I'm like, you have to read about her unethical conduct because that typically in all the biographies that gets swept under the rug, that gets ignored, that gets excused, but the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And I think you've probably put, I would guess probably everything in this book in the footnotes that people can look up online. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, there's a lot of unethical conduct. Um, there's the two that are kind of my favorites. I'll let you discuss what you like, but, but I, I'm very interested in, uh, when she sold a copy of the first annual address to Congress for a bribe. And then of course the famous manure dinner with uh, Prince Napoleon, just a couple of highlights, but tell us a little bit about this unethical conduct and, and um, you know, how you found it and what your thoughts are on its importance. As I mentioned uh, a minute ago, in addition to the Browning interview that I discovered uh, in which he talks about Lincoln's fear that his wife would bring him into disgrace, there's Browning's diary. Now, Browning's diary was published in two fat volumes back in, 19, in the 1920s, 1930s. And it's an invaluable source of uh, information about Lincoln's tremendous resource. And, and James G. Randall and his uh, co-editor Peace, Theodore Calvin Peace, deserve a great deal of credit. But, but they agreed to omit six passages. And, and you're, you're warned in the introduction that we've omitted six passages because of reference to Mrs. Lincoln, and it's just idle gossip that's really not very important. <laughs> and and th these guys are serious scholars, and I'm sure that they wouldn't have agreed to do that, and, and that the Illinois State Historical Library wouldn't have agreed to buy this document under normal circumstances if, if the owner said, well, I'm not going to allow you to print these six passages which tell about Mrs. Lincoln. But apparently the owner said, well, in that case, to hell with it. I'll, I'll burn it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> anything but that. Well, I remember when I, when I was when I was working on my first book, I, I, I saw that and I said, geez, I'll go right out to Illinois and look at the manuscript diary. So I do that. 
And the, the folks at Illinois couldn't have been nicer and more helpful at the library. And, and uh, But they said, you know, we, we can't do that. That's part of the deed and it's an, our responsibility to honor the deed and all that. And I said, I, I fully appreciate that. On the other hand, I thought to myself, I bet you that that restriction on the access to the diary was not enforced rigorously right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And some of the early biographers, that is in the 1920s, after the diary was uh, uh, purchased by the Illinois State Historical Library, I bet you in their research notes, we'll find some uh, passages reproduced. I went through the papers of lots of the early biographers and I found a lot of good stuff. I had a Tarbell's papers with people, people had ignored. There's great stuff in there. Right. Um, There's so much great uh, stuff in historians' <laughs> papers. Absolutely. Uh, because what, what, what historians do oftentimes is they take, do a lot of research. They take a lot of <laughs> notes. They, they have a lot of material and their publishers are saying, you've got to condense that snowball. You've got to compact it. <laughs> right. My, my publisher with a big, big book was merciless in confining me to 2,000 pages. Um, <laughs> And so I was at the University of Chicago and doing some research uh, in the papers of a historian named William E. Barton. Yes, those are great papers. Who wrote, who wrote, who wrote several uh, books in the 1920s, and, and, and they still have value today. I was looking for anything, uh, any of these six passages, but also I was doing general research. So there's tons of good information, as you've mentioned, in, the, in those papers. And so I'm about to leave and go on to my next stop. The librarian says, well, did you find everything you were looking for? I said, well, geez, I found a great deal of stuff. It's really a great collection. And you've done a magnificent job in preserving it and making it available to people like me. But there was one thing I was particularly interested in that I didn't find. So he said, well, you know, we got 10 more boxes of this stuff that haven't been uh, processed yet. And I was, and I was like, sweet to a pig. I said, you know, all right. <laughs> right. Isn't that the greatest <laughs> feeling? <laughs> Whoa, jumping. <laughs> and there, bam, is one of the entries in the diary. And this is an entry in which Browning describes a meeting that he had with David Davis, who at that time was a Supreme Court justice, U.S. Supreme Court justice. And a biography had just appeared, uh, ostensibly written by Ward Hill Lamont, but actually written by his ghostwriter, a guy named Chauncey Black. And which used a lot of the Herndon materials, actually. So uh, Browning says to David Davis, says, now this, this Lamon biography, uh, he has a lot to say about Mrs. Lincoln and how, how she misbehaved. And, and, uh, but all this stuff about how she stole material from the White House when she left and, and box loads of stuff was uh, purloined uh, unethically uh, and illegally. I mean, that's certainly not true. And Davis says, no, 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 no. Uh, the evidence of her... Uh, guilt is too overwhelming to admit of a doubt. She was a natural born thief. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <She> <laughs> right. Out of her insatiable need to steal a lot of stuff that was valueless, but she right. just had this insatiable need to steal. The holy mackerel. Well, then I happened to mention that in a uh, question and answer session I, at a Springfield legal event. And I, I mentioned this uh, and then a reporter picked up on it. Uh, then it got publicized, that, that one excerpt, and then the library decided to release all the other five excerpts. Uh-huh. And all of those deal with Mrs. Lincoln's corruption. That, right. that Members of the White House staff would come to Browning and say, you, something's got to be done about Mrs. Lincoln. She's, she's padding payroll. She's padding expense accounts. Uh, and if something isn't done, uh, it's going to really uh, humiliate and embarrass the administration. And there are several such sources 
Um, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting stuff. And, and, and I published that, those diary entries as part of that essay you mentioned. And I assumed everybody would have to deal with these diary entries now, forget right. it. <laughs> it's just hope yeah. they didn't exist. People um, just ignored it. They, they didn't like what it said. It's, uh... And so I followed up on this by going into the archives of U.S. Committee on um, Public Buildings, the Senate Committee on Public Buildings, and there you get a lot of evidence. People writing to the, the senators saying, "You know, there's an awful lot of make work and and ghost jobs around here." And, right. Uh, and and so and, and you get you get this information, and and somewhat difficult to come by. The dealing with the archives is a challenge, but um, right. So so those diary entries tip me off, and then research in the public uh, records, particularly of, of the Senate. Committee on uh, Public Buildings and, and others, the Interior Department in general, mm -hmm. uh, yielded an awful lot of information about how she had padded payrolls and expense accounts. And, right. and, and she uh, would fire people, right? And then hire kind of a ghost person and she'd pocket exactly. the money. So I thought, jeepers, this is pretty embarrassing stuff. And so I laid it all out. The evidence is so strong. That gets back to an earlier point about Herndon and his informants. I was trained, as I say, by David Donald. And David taught me that you, you mustn't regard the Herndon archives as uh, trustworthy. And when I wrote my first book, I thought, well, I should at least look at them. And the, those are, those uh, interviews and, and correspondence hadn't been published then. That, so you had to go to an old, old antique microfilm. Or badly Very done. hard to read. I remember going <laughs> and, through those. <laughs> now, wait a minute. This doesn't seem to me to be exaggerated. And when, he, when, he, when Herndon runs into conflicting evidence, he goes back and re-examines re and re-interviews these people. And I said, geez, you know, I'm going to use this stuff in my book. I'll probably get crucified because it's re regarded as a, as a nuclear waste dump uh, <laughs> right. when it's a real gold mine. But I thought, what the heck? I mean, it's, it's, this is what I believe. Well, mercifully, two very fine Illinois historians just before my book came out published articles about the Ann Rutledge story saying, yeah, the, Hern the Ann Rutledge story is true. The Herndon archive is trustworthy. Um, right. But, but insofar as the evidence that I adduce in this new book is from Herndon's informants. More evidence of her misbehavior comes from other sources, mainly these newspapers. Right, absolutely. Um, and so, so, so even if you set aside all of the information that I adduce in the book, that it can be traced to Herndon's informants, and you just say, there's, a, there's an equal amount, if not more, coming from interviews and reminiscences with people who lived in Springfield and knew. And some people say, well, you're just reporting rumors. No, I'm not. I'm not reporting rumors. I'm talking, this is a neighbor who says this happened. This is a neighbor who said that happened. This is a lawyer who said that happened. These were eyewitnesses. Now, right. memory can play tricks to be sure. But if you get enough of this evidence that all leans in the same, almost all leans in the same direction, uh, or if you get if you get a ton of evidence in one scale and an ounce in the other, you go with a ton. Right. Um, so, um, so that's one of the things that the, 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 there's kind of when you, when I went back rereading the the, the proofs of this book, it's just like an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, absolutely. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. And 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 one of the problems from the point of view of the general reader is you seem like a meanie because you keep telling all these stories about how how she misbehaved. Um, and, and you don't put it in context. Well, I do. At the beginning, I say she's more to be pitied than censured. And right. I was half tempted to ask my publisher if he would run a header and a footer on each page. And at the <laughs> top of the page, it said she's more to be pitied than censured. And at the bottom, it said, but she behaved very badly and made her husband's life miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the front of the back of the book, you could just have a picture of yourself saying, I don't hate Mary Lincoln. 
Right. <laughs> right. And I said, look, I don't hate Mary Lincoln. I, I, have, I, I feel sorry for her. It's, geez, we all have a fair amount of stuff to deal with. But look at all this stuff. she. And her husband was not an ideal uh, mate. And and they weren't terrible people individually, but they were incompatible, a terribly incompatible couple. So. Right. Now, a reviewer of your book in the Illinois Times made a great statement. Um, he said, a historian is not a therapist. His or her responsibility is to understand, as in comprehend, not as in sympathize with, which right. is, I think, exactly right. But, you know, straight out, do you sympathize with Mary Lincoln? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, gosh, um, imagine, well, my, my, I lost my father when I was an adolescent, but that's not losing your mother when you're six. I mean, right. I, I took a long time to, to deal with all that. And one of the things that has to be understood is that, it, that, that what a historian's job is, is to tell the story as accurately as possible, what actually happened. Right. Um, and then to make the behavior of people in the past and their thinking understandable to a modern audience. And, and to make something understandable is not to forgive it. That is, there's an old cliche, to understand all is to forgive all. No, 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 no. Uh, because you, it's very important for us to understand how is it possible for a nation like Germany to have a Hitler emerge, a right. great civilized nation like that. Um, and it's easy to say it was a terrible man, did terrible things. But you really want to know, how did it happen? Why did it happen? What, what, what made it possible? So um, to understand all is not to forgive all. But that's, that's the main job of the historian is, is to tell the story as accurately as possible and then to make that action and that thought comprehensible to a modern audience. Exactly. Now, boy, I could talk about this for hours with you, but uh, I'm going to have to bring it to a close. One last, one last question and comment. Uh, one thing you had in the book, Carl Schurz, who's a politician, Civil War general, he testified, and a friend of the Lincolns, he testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Pensions in 1869 about Mary Lincoln was uh, applying for a pension. And he called the president's marriage the greatest tragedy of Mr. Lincoln's existence. Now, I think that's a great quote and a great kind of closing comment. What Do you agree with that? Or do you think there's some room for understanding or, or that dreaded word of nuance in there? Oh, no, I think that's accurate. And, and this book, although I talk a lot about uh, Mrs. Lincoln, of course, uh, but the, the book is really meant to make Lincoln's life more understandable. And, and as I say, Lincoln's triumph over adversity, understandable. And, and Schultz was not the only person who felt that way. And, and he had some dealings with her during the war. And he heard a lot of testimony. And the, and the testimony before the Committee on Pensions is not available. But, but we do know that uh, there's some of the people, or at least some of the children, some of the people who are on that say um, that the testimony was that she made her husband's life miserable. I think Schultz's uh, comment about how the, the marriage was the greatest tragedy in Lincoln's life, I think, is accurate. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Again, uh, I'm talking with Michael Burlingame, Lincoln scholar extraordinaire, talking about his new book, An American Marriage, The Untold Story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. And, you know, I devoured it in uh, almost one sitting. It was just so fascinating. Um, I highly recommend it. If anyone is interested in the Lincoln marriage, Mary, Abraham, kind of uh, how they coalesced and how they lived together or didn't. This is definitely a groundbreaking book that I think everybody should take a look at. So Michael, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been my distinct pleasure. I always uh, relish every opportunity I can get to talk about my favorite subject without having to grade anybody's papers or exams. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Again, that's guest host Jason Emerson, author of 
Mary Lincoln for the Ages, and he was interviewing Michael Burlingame about his book, An American Marriage, the untold story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. And you heard Michael Burlingame say there that he wrote that subhead. And as you can tell from his in-depth research, he puts the teeth to make sure that saying something like untold story is not just an empty boast. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to both Michael Berlingame for joining us and to Jason Emerson for pinch hitting today, which meant doing the hard work of conducting this interview, reading the book, and deciding how he could bring you the best conversation possible. It really was nice for me to just sit back and enjoy watching for a change. Their websites are michaelberlingame.com, where you can find that epic Lincoln biography of his, and also jasonemerson.com. Once you go there, you can find links to everything they both do and have to say if you haven't had your fill of Lincoln yet. And judging by how many books I get about Lincoln, nobody has yet. You can find them on social media as well, and you can track me down on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or subscribe via our YouTube channel for future conversations. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Jason Emerson and Michael Berlingame, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular.